privilege unbridled is something that seduces us to abide by the patterns of this world. And so when you are a person who is not impacted by the oppression that's happening in the world, then you have the privilege of being able to say, oh, well, that's not my issue. I don't really have to be concerned about it. And the fact that you're trying to shine a light on this in a way that makes me uncomfortable, you're actually the source of the problem, not the oppression that's provoking your lament. Welcome to Shake the Dust, Leaving Colonized Faith for the Kingdom of God, a podcast of KTF Press. My name is Cy Hoekstra. I am here with Jonathan Walton and Susie LaHood. Today we have an interview with Dominique Du Bois Gilliard, the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church. Gilliard's latest book, Subversive Witness, Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege, was just published by Zondervan. He previously wrote the award-winning Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores. Gilead also serves as an adjunct professor at North Park Theological Seminary and its School of Restorative Arts and serves on the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association. In this episode, we talk to him about his new book, How the Bible Discusses Privilege, Reading Scripture with Ideas Like Privilege, Power Dynamics and Trauma in Mind, How Disciples of Jesus Leverage Privilege for God's Kingdom, The Church's Truncated Conception of Repentance, and a whole lot more. As a reminder, if you like this show, the best way you can support us is by going to ktfpress.com and subscribing. That gets you our weekly newsletter curating resources to help you in discipleship and political education as you seek to leave colonized faith for the kingdom of God, bonus episodes of this show, and writing from us. By the way, subscribers will get bonus episodes from us during the off-season. And, as always... They get their own private podcast feed where all of our regular and bonus episodes show up that you can easily add to your podcast player. The subscription also supports this show and other projects we're working on, like the new book deal we just announced with Tamise Spencer. You can go to the previous entry on your podcast feed for more info and that exciting news. You can also get a free month of the subscription by going to ktfpress.com slash free month. Again, that's ktfpress.com slash free month. Please remember to hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast player. Follow us at KTF Press on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and tell your friends about us. Finally, next week is our season finale episode. Thanks so much to those who have given us questions to talk about. If you have anything you want us to cover, send an email to shakethedust at ktfpress.com. You should probably get that in this weekend since we'll be recording early next week. Without further ado, here's our interview with Dominique. Dominique Dubois-Gilliard, thank you so much for joining us on Shake the Dust today. We really appreciate you being here. Static to be with you in your community. So uh, let's just jump right into it. You have this new book out, Subversive Witness. Can you can you give us kind of a brief summary of what's it what it's about and what you were hoping to accomplish with it? Yeah. So at the core, the book is really trying to help uh, the Western Church in particular reconsider the ways in which we have conflated and confused confession and repentance. And it's trying to call us back to a more biblical understanding of repentance, particularly rooted in Matthew 3, 8, where John the Baptist tells us that there should be fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, So that's one of the thrust of the book. And the other thrust is really um, to kind of respond to something I've seen uh, across the country as I uh, go across the country doing my job. So one of the things for listeners is uh, my nine to five, quote unquote, um, is that I serve as a pastor to pastors uh, for our roughly 900 congregations throughout North America, helping them make connections between scripture uh, justice and racial righteousness and reconciliation and how those things interact with each other and should ultimately uh, be things that inform our witness as the body of Christ. And so as I kind of go across the country uh, doing my work within the uh, my denomination and outside of it, I really realized that there Uh, When it came to the conversation of privilege, um, which has become such a contested conversation, there really are 
predominantly three uh, congregational responses to the conversation. Uh, the first uh, I noticed was a, a flat-out denial that privilege is real, and mm -hmm. that is a biblical concept. Mm -hmm. um, the second response would be where leadership kind of acknowledged that privilege was real, but honestly determines that it's too tricky of a train to navigate and that they would lose too many people and too much uh, financial support for their church if they pressed into it. So mm -hmm. they kind of sidestep it. And then the third one would be where congregations and congregants would press into the conversation and really try to reckon with privilege. But uh, at the end, a lot of folks in the congregation would feel immobilized by the weight of privilege and really wouldn't know what to do with this these new revelations that they've gleaned from pressing into the conversation. And I, I just noticed that none of those three responses were going to help animate our faith and help and embolden us to participate and demonstrate our faith in found in transformative ways in the world. And so that really took me back to scripture and really spending some intentional time and discernment with God and with community. And what came out of that was this revelation that the gospel offers us a fourth way. And that fourth way is that scripture affirms that privilege is real. But it also acknowledges that we're constantly going to be tempted to exploit privilege for selfish gain as opposed to what we would do with privilege if we really look to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and particularly the Philippians uh, 2, Christ Him, where we see Jesus had the option of exploiting privilege for selfish gain, but in ch instead chose to choose to sacrificially leverage his privilege for the furtherance of the kingdom and to sacrificially love his neighbors. And so I wanted to point out how that's not just a model we see in Jesus, but that's actually a consistent model that is uh, offered to us throughout scripture. So I wanted to point to those, flesh that out, and talk about how that actually becomes a blueprint for the body of Christ in such an unjust society to try to uh, to really bear fruit in keeping with repentance and to distinctively bear witness to who and whose we are through how we live and love in the world. So let's talk about one of the passages in scripture you read through the lens of leveraging privilege. You write in Subversive Witness about the ways that Esther was privileged while living as the queen, and that privilege made it both easier for Xerxes to exploit her and harder for Mordecai's lament about the king's genocidal decree to really affect her. Can you explain how that worked and how privilege more broadly harms discipleship? Yeah, so Esther's story is a complex story, and it, uh, one of the things you'll see when I read, when you read the book is that, um, for your audience, uh, is that I really try to press into some of the complexities of our human realities, uh, because mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we have a bad tendency to do is to disconnect some of the complexities of life today from the biblical revelation in scripture. And mm -hmm. so, for example, trauma. Trauma is a thing that's real, that tangibly impacts our lives, our brains, our decisions, our life chances, all of these things, but generally we read scripture as if trauma wasn't a reality then. Um, and it wasn't something that informed people's lives and their decisions and their ability to hear God's call upon their life and respond to it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that inability to make that connection between our present realities and that historic truth is something that really becomes a stumbling block for a lot of believers as they try to discern and respond to God's call today. Because we don't really see ourselves as worthy because of some of the baggage we bring and some of those different things. And so I really wanted to enter into some of that complexity uh, and help make some connections uh, there. But one of the reasons why I offer that uh, is because when we talk about uh, Esther's story, like we can't honestly talk about that story without talking about Esther's trauma. Mm -hmm. um, Esther is someone who is an orphan, 
who then has to go live with her uh, uncle Mordecai. And then she ultimately uh, is somebody who gets swept up into uh, this, you know, den of exploitation after King Xerxes expels Queen Vashti from the palace for standing up for her human rights and Dign, uh, personal dignity, uh, mm-hmm. refusing to be sexually exploited in front of the king and his drunken friends. And so that jettisoning creates this space, this vacancy with the, within uh, Xerxes' reign or kingdom uh, for a queen. And yeah. he creates this, what we generally talk about as a beauty pageant, uh, <laughs> which is really this kind of exploitative exploitative uh commissioning of young virgin women trafficking yeah 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 of young virgin women who are trafficked and are ultimately pampered before they're sexually exploited by the king and then he 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 selects the woman who satisfies him the most to become queen and so esther has to go through that sexual exploitation after losing her parents at a young age and she's told by her uncle to conceal her true ethnic identity to be able to pass as a Persian in the uh, in the palace. And so she has all of this trauma that she's trying to navigate. And one of the things that we know from trauma studies today is that when traumatized people are in toxic situations where that trauma is pretty consistently triggered, um, they usually end up either going into fight flight or freeze mode um and freeze mode really is a way in which you are immobilized in the midst of what you're trying to navigate because that trauma takes over your body and your brain because we carry it in our body and our brain and it kind of leads us into this essentially a sedated state of engagement where you Mm -hmm. can't fully function as yourself and respond in the ways that you would in your healthy centered self. And I see that's really a lot of what's going on with Esther in regards to Xerxes' ability to exploit her and to keep her kind of in this sedated state where she ultimately starts to engage in the luxuries and the privileges and the prestige of the palace to the extent that she really loses uh, her ability to be connected to the pain and the experience of her people on the outside. So much so that she is completely unaware that as someone who is a Jew, that there is a commission, uh, a decree going out that all the Jews will be exterminated throughout the land. Um, And Mordecai, she only comes into a revelation of this decree uh, that comes from the king's new number two, Haman, and the king signs off on, um, when her uncle comes to the palace gates in sackcloth and ashes, and he's weeping and wailing and lamenting because of the pending fate of his people. And Esther Mm -hmm. has no clue what's going on because privilege, privilege and her own trauma, because I think it's complex, so we have to hold the two together. And so Mordecai comes and actually becomes this prophetic voice that's trying to remind her of who and who she is, and the fact that her privilege actually has a missional purpose, and it's not just to actually isolate her from the suffering of the outside world and to make her life nice and comfortable and pristine. Um, And so when she first uh, encounters Mordecai's lament, she responds in an imperial way, uh, which is to silence suffering. Um, she she adds, she sends him clothes, tells him to get dressed because self, sackcloth and ashes is inappropriate. It's going to bring attention. Mm. It's going to be an indictment on Xerxes and his leadership and the palace she has found a home within. And Mordecai refuses uh, to be silenced in his lament, and he persists. And it's only after that persisting, only after her initial, his refusal of her initial kind of 
way of trying to meet him. And I want to, and again, nuance is important. I actually think that Esther is very well-intentioned in trying to send Mordecai clothes because as her uncle, she's concerned about his safety. She's concerned about uh, the retribution and the way worldly empires actually make public spectacles out of people who try to shine a light on the oppression that their, their flourishing is built upon. And that's really what Mur Mordecai's lament is doing, is shining a light on what's actually happening inside uh, the confines of the palace. And so she's trying to silence it, but well-intentioned. And I think this is important because I think one of the things that can trip Christians up is we have been conditioned to prioritize intentions over impact. And in doing so, we make ourselves complicit with silent, the silencing of suffering. Um, and oftentimes when we do that, we become people who try to proclaim peace, peace where there is no peace. And we end up becoming um, affirmers and supporters of the status quo which really in reality is antithetical to the kingdom of God and what we're commissioned yeah. to represent in the world. And so, um, but ultimately Mordecai is able to penetrate the, what I talk about is like the imperial numbness or satiation. Um, and he's able to, to help Esther realize that the missional purpose of her uh, privilege, and that is to subversively use it to get access to the king because she has unique access, even though restricted access because of the patriarchal society she's in. She does have unique access to help inform uh, and persuade the king to actually uh, reconsider the genocide and actually denounce it and actually create a way for the people of God to actually be able to be restored and liberated from the genocide that's pending for them. Can we talk about that, that issue of lament for a yeah. second? Because I thought this, this part was particularly important for a lot of dynamics in the church today. You use the point briefly where Esther sends Mordecai clothes as um, kind of a starting point to discuss the idea of repackaging people telling people who are lamenting to repackage their lament, to make it more appropriate, to make it more palatable. Can you talk a little bit about how that plays out? In, in, how are you seeing that playing out in the church today? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that privilege uh, tempts us into doing it tempt, really privilege unbridled is something that seduces us to um, abide by the patterns of this world. And really in a Romans 12, 1 and 2, kind of a way. And when we do that, one of the the lies, the imperial lies that exist is that we only have to be concerned about oppression or injustice when it directly impacts us or people we see ourselves as related to. Yeah. And so when you are a person who is not impacted by the oppression that's happening in the world, then you have the quote unquote privilege of being able to say, oh, well, that's not my issue. I don't really have to be concerned about it. And the fact that you're trying to shine a light on this in a way that it inconveniences my life or makes me uncomfortable, you're actually the source of the problem, not mm -hmm. the oppression that's actually provoking your lament. And I can have some sympathy and empathy for your cause, but that sympathy or empathy will not allow my life to be interrupted. Um, and so if your part, if your oppression, the oppression you're experiencing is causing me to have to interrupt my life, I can only quote unquote, stand in solidarity with you or show empathy or compassion towards you as long as you can reframe your lament in a way that doesn't make me uncomfortable or doesn't interrupt my life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very anti-gospel uh, way of thinking. Um, and we, I mean, we see this, you know, from conversations about Me Too or Church Too to Black Lives Matters to advocacy around separation of family at the southern border. Like this is a constant thing that we see where 
I think a lot of Christians are like, I'm not necessarily against you shining a light on that, Mm -hmm. but your light can't inconvenience my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you could only repackage that in a way that feels more palatable to me, then I could be more supportive of the cause. And I think, you know, we have to really reckon with how privilege really tempts us to first seek to repackage protest as opposed to first seeking to figure out what injustice is evoking such a visceral response, such a a prophetic lament that folk feel like they have no other option but to right now, you know, amid a global pandemic, go out and, you know, mobilize in the streets or in Mordecai's Mordecai's case to go and strip his clothes and protest in front of the palace gates and sackcloth and ashes. Like our our first response should be to seek to understand what kind of sinful reality has caused our sisters and brothers, our neighbors who suffer, to prophetically lament in such a public way. But generally because of privilege, our first response is to try to repackage it. And then we seek to understand after we have become more comfortable with the way that it's being presented to us. Yeah. And I think trauma comes into this too, right? Like you were talking about before, Susie has spoken before on on this show about how, um, you know, a lot of times we want to hear people's stories of like, basically how, how Jesus helped them overcome their trauma, but mm-hmm. we don't actually want to hear anything about like we we don't want to deal with the ways in which trauma affects people that make us uncomfortable. And sometimes not always, certainly, but sometimes the ways that people react to things that are, that are tragic and painful, you know, are traumatic responses and they don't, they're not clean and they're not simple and they're not necessarily like a good bullet pointed argument to convince everyone about, you know, whatever the, whatever the injustice is. And I, I just, I, appreciate you bringing those those points in that like aspect of trauma into your reading of scripture which i i agree is something we see very rarely mm-hmm. all right so you used paul and silas in act 16 as examples of how we can leverage privilege like in a in a christ-like way uh yeah what did that look like and what is someone who's been discipled well in the area of leveraging privilege do so how did Paul and Silas do it? And then how can we apply that that to our daily lives as we leverage our privilege for the kingdom of God? Yeah, so um, Paul and Silas were Roman citizens who saw an injustice happen in their community. Uh, they saw a woman who was being exploited for the demon that was possessing her body. Um, and the there were powerful men who were becoming rich off of her exploitation. But it wasn't just the men, uh, because they were connected to an entire uh, interweb of exploitation, because the the text tells us that the city was thrown into an uproar um, because of their liberation of this woman. And so uh, they go, uh, the men try to make them pay once they liberate the demon, and they take them to the city square, which doubles as the uh, judiciary. And scripture's trying to give us a hint here um, that the, the marketplace and the judiciary are in cahoots. Hmm. And they go uh, before the magistrates and they are taken. And the men who are pressing charges against them don't only press charges against them for liberating the woman, they also ethnically identify them as Jews. And this is a strategic choice because they they know that in Rome, there has been fear-mongering that has been deployed that has created a very anti, anti-Semitic atmosphere. And so the attachment of Jewish identity to Paul and Silas, even though they are Roman citizens, um, the attachment of them being Jews really unleashes the crowd's repressed xenophobia. And the text tells us that the crowd joins in on their persecution and they are stripped naked, beaten with rods before they are denied access to a trial by the judiciary and then falsely incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Paul and Silas, though, are Roman citizens. So they're from Rome. They know the temperature 
of Rome in regards to anti-Semitism. And they know that all they have to do the entire time that the trials are going on is actually prove their citizenship. And then the way that their case is being handled will be fundamentally shifted. But instead of doing that, they endure the persecution of the other, of the outsider, of the immigrant, of the non-Roman citizen, um, and they are falsely incarcerated. Well, the next morning or early at the crack of dawn, the magistrates come into awareness that they actually had persecuted and, you know, profiled and were unjust to fellow Roman citizens. And at that point, they become concerned and they say, actually, we have to reckon with this and we actually have to free these people. And so what they want to do is they actually send orders to release Paul and Silas at the crack of dawn when there's no accountability and there's no transparency about what has happened. And Paul resists and he says, they beat us publicly, they humiliated us publicly, and now they want to release us quietly. No, make them come and release us themselves. And he's basically using his Roman citizenship as a way to resist the ways in which the judiciary has been unjust to anyone who is non-Roman citizen and the way in which they do their dirty work under the veil of darkness. Mm. And he's saying this sin has to come to light and we have to reckon with the fact that it is not okay for us as the people of God to live in a land where the judicial, the legal system is only just for Roman citizens. But we know that our non-Roman neighbors who live amongst us are going to be exploited and um, there's going to be a prioritization of profit over justice for them. But the system might work for us. And it's not okay for us to be complicit and complacent within a system where we know that it's only just for some and not just for all. And so they ultimately leverage their Roman citizenship as a way to shine a light on systemic sin and to advocate for judicial accountability and systemic change. And when we understand our privilege properly, then we understand that when we have access um, and influence within a broken system or structure, that access and that standing within that system is not for us to just exploit it in a way where we take the perks of it, but we're supposed to become advocates who, advocates and allies who bear witness to who and whose we are through how we exist and navigate those systems. And prayerfully, we are supposed to be people who create kingdom pressure points within mm -hmm. these structures of exploitation where we can work with our other members of the interconnected body of Christ. And we ultimately start to topple these unjust systems and structures and reconstruct them in God-honoring ways. Um, and so I think that that takes an understanding of solidarity that, you know, is just much deeper than the way that a lot of our congregations talk about it. You know, Paul and Silas suffer in solidarity with the oppressed to expose systemic sin and the Roman judicial system it's mired in. They embody, again, going back to the Christ hymn, uh, by understanding that true solidarity requires suffering with, enduring, uh, entering in when privilege tempts us to believe that we don't have to. Um, and that we can opt out of suffering. And so that's, you know, a real discipleship of how do we leverage privilege helps us to see that, you know, we're always going to be tempted to be able to opt out of suffering mm -hmm. or to or to see ourselves as not being called to share in the sufferings of Christ, um, like scripture commissions us to. But if we truly understand that, like, we are blessed to be a blessing and that ultimately my flourishing and my my flourishing is tied up in my neighbor's flourishing and if i'm okay in a society where things work for me but i know that what works for me 
is rooted in the detriment of my neighbor, then we're not faithfully following Jesus. Um, and we just have to be really, we have to be more explicit about that because I think that we, we have taught passages like the Good Samaritan and taught passages that like imply it, but we're not really explicit about it. And I think one of the things I tried to really bring forth that I think is one of the core questions at the heart of scripture that I think is asked over and over again, but we don't explicitly name it within our preaching and teaching and discipleship oftentimes is, the question, is the gospel still good news when it costs you something? Mm. And I think that's the question that laid before Paul and Silas in this passage. And they knew that, you know, standing in solidarity with their non-Roman citizens meant that they were going to have to endure being beat, beat, persecuted, stripped naked, falsely incarcerated. And they were willing to do it all. And they didn't mumble a word about their citizenship until it was the right opportunity to hold the system accountable and to expose the systemic sin and advocate for uh, structural change. You use the phrase in the book, cruciform solidarity. And I was like, yeah. underline, mm-hmm. highlight, write that down. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's so good. You just gave like a quick personal relational systemic exegesis of Act 16. Gave yep. like context, gave content. Something I'm wondering is what do you say to pastors and leaders that do the exact same thing, but for... I would argue like unbiblical purposes. So Mm. they would, you know, look at the same passage and say, look at how Esther submitted to authority. She did not try to oppose the system. She bared witness in the midst of it and struggled and helped her family and then did did something different with it. Uh, That's something that wasn't subversive. Right. But was but but use the Bible to justify that. It's like because I I think there's going to be people who listen to this and say, they're going to go to their pastor with this Acts 16 or Esther passage and like believe wholeheartedly they've done the research and then they're going to be resisted theologically, Mm -hmm. right? And so how do we engage in a way that pulls people into subversive witness and not just like posturing arguments? Yeah, let me double down on Acts 16 real quick and then I'll (laughs) I'll expand and... So one of the thing, you know, one of the ways in which we we hear kind of the subversive witness suppressed within the church is for Christians who say things like I wasn't a part of building an unjust system, so therefore like I'm not responsible for trying to deconstruct it. Mm-hmm. Um I, you know, or the way that that might translate in North America is, you know, I wasn't a part of indigenous land theft. I never owned a slave. I didn't, you know, support or vote for, you know, Chinese exclusion or Japanese internment. Like those things are horrible, but like I didn't do it. So I have no responsibility. And even if there are some structural distortions that still existed as remnants of those things, again, I didn't do it. So I'm not responsible. So in this passage, Paul and Silas didn't construct the unjust legal system of Rome. They they weren't lawyers in that way. They weren't magistrates. They they weren't, you know, prison guards. They they weren't complicit in the construction of the system mm-hmm. at all. But they recognized that they were still benefiting from the system. Mm-hmm. Um and that their lives were going to be fundamentally different as Roman citizens in Rome because of the way that the judiciary was set up to affirm, dignify, and humanize Roman citizens' lives in a way that it wasn't willing to do for non-Roman citizens. Mm. To live with that awareness and to apathetically respond to that systemic sin would have been something that was antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was not good news to people who were non-Roman citizens. So (laughs) their faith in Christ, their new life in Christ compelled them to respond to the brokenness that existed because of their uh, foreparents' decisions and sin 
to be a part of being what Isaiah 58 tells us is to be a repairer of the breach. Mm-hmm. And this is what I think we really miss out on within our preaching, our teaching, and our discipleship. Scripture is explicit. There are breaches that exist in our world. And it's not just a breach between us and Jesus because of sin. There are actual structural breaches, systemic breaches, and legislative breaches that Mm -hmm. continue to exacerbate the sins of our foreparents. And we are called to be co-laborers with Christ who are in the midst of reconciling all things, not just broken people. It says all things, which includes broken systems and structures. Mm to Christ, uh, I mean, to God through Christ. And so as we do this work as ambassadors of reconciliation, part of what that entails is cultivating hearts to respond to the breaches that exist in our world Mm -hmm. and to understand that our missional purpose as the people of God is to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world. And when we do that, scripture is clear that we know what love is because Christ first laid down his life for us so that we could go and essentially do likewise. And so in doing that, when we see oppression, injustice, systemic sin in the world that doesn't directly impact us, we get the chance to really take on the Christ-like mindset. And again, let me be clear. We are not saviors. We don't go salvifically Mm -hmm. and do this, but we get a chance to follow the example of uh, our Lord and Savior who chose to leave the shalom of heaven to enter into the brokenness of our world, compelled by love to bear witness to the fact that we have an opportunity to be liberated from the the powers and the principalities that are vying to claim our allegiance or cause us to give our allegiance to anything other than the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And the passage that's really important for me in this is uh, John 13, 34, and 35, where Jesus, is, Jesus gives us a new commandment. And he says, by how we love one another, the world will know that we are Jesus's disciples. And so I think right now, you know, we, we confuse how the world will know. Um, a lot of people believe the world will know that we are Jesus's disciples through our culture wars. A lot of people think oh, that the world will know that we are Jesus's disciples for what we stand against. A lot of people think that the world will know that we are Jesus's disciples by all these different things. But scripture is very clear. Jesus himself says that the world will know that you are my disciples by how you choose to sacrificially love one another. And so when there is oppression and injustice going on that doesn't directly impact us, but we choose to enter in, to share in the suffering of Christ, to stand in true solidarity with our neighbors, the world sees that and they recognize that there's something distinctive about who we are. And when they want to know and they start to inquire, why do we choose to live and love in the way we do? Then that's when we get a chance to bear witness to the fact that it's not us, but it's actually a power at work in and through us that's stronger than us, that compels us to love beyond our human limitations. And we get to bear witness to the fact that it is truly uh, not us, because we have died, but it's Christ who is risen and now lives in and through us. And that's a way I think we really get to pair evangelism and justice together in a way that is really at the foundation of the disconnection that you're talking about, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Um, most of our congregations are congregations that prioritize evangelism at the detriment of justice. And then we have some congregations that are all about justice and don't really care too much about evangelism. But the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to the both and. And and I think we get an ability to bear witness to the both and when we live in love in that way. Um, and then lastly, I, one of the other passages I really flesh out in the text that kind of explicitly speaks to this is Acts 6, uh, verses mm-hmm. 1 through 7. Um, it's another example of... When we are mature enough in our faith, and when this is one of the other impulses or calls of the book, is really for the body of Christ to move from milk to solid food. We we gotta mature in our faith so we can have some of these difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we are mature enough to recognize 
injustice in our midst and to respond to it appropriately, not to just try to throw a bandage over it or explain it away, but to truly reckon with it and to systemically address it, then the world recognizes that as good news. And because of that, the gospel flourishes in our communities. And sometimes because of the wisdom and the humility that we demonstrate, the gospel will also flourish in another place down the line that we may never know or see, but it's still alive and active because the world responds to the fact that there are people who are mature enough and centered enough in their faith to understand that we're going to make mistakes. And when we do, will we have the humility and the integrity to do it, to acknowledge those things in public and to acknowledge them in a way that's not just a cover up that will just mean that the problem will reemerge and three months or four months or a year later. But we're really trying to faithfully do the hard work of actually being folks who are fostering flourishing and seeking shalom, even if that means that we have to concede power, uh, that we have to publicly confess our sins, and that we are going to create new systems and structures of accountability so that the same sins don't continue to reemerge and and kill, steal, and destroy our witness. And I think that's really important because we talk a lot about the mission of God, but we don't talk about the mission of Satan. And scripture is is explicit. Satan has a missional purpose in the world, and that is to kill, steal, and destroy our witness. Mm. And when we're silent in the face of our neighbor's dehumanization and exploitation, Satan still kills and destroys our witness to the world because the world won't know that we're Jesus's disciples when we pass by on the other side as our wounded neighbor suffers and bleeds to death. (laughs) <laughs> that that was great. Very helpful. And I hope that people can break that down for their pastors when they have these conversations. <laughs> <laughs> just just say that. Just that's all you gotta say. Just hit play at minute 40 and watch the Holy Spirit come into your pastoral meeting. <laughs> so you mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation as one of the major thrusts of the book, and certainly it's already been cross-cutting theme of this uh, this conversation, but you draw on a distinction between understanding repentance as just oral confession and actually bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Could you take some time to, to double down on that, to explain the difference, to unpack that some more for us? Yeah, um, there's a real difference between acknowledging that we did something wrong and turning away from sin and returning back to God. Um, And I think in a lot of our congregations, we have become content with confessing that we did something wrong. Um, But scripture calls us to turn away from sin and to turn back to God and says that there should be some evidence of that turning back to God in our lives. Um, there should be something distinctive about our witness in the world, um, our relationships, uh, our posture because of our restoration of right relationship with God and neighbor. Um, and, you know, I think, it, and the part of the reason why I think this conversation scares some folks is the fact that I think when we start to talk about fruit, then some people start to think that we're talking about works righteousness. Mm. And scripture is clear that because of who and whose we are in the world, there should be kingdom fruit that's produced in the way that we live and love. And that measurement of like, is there actually life that comes from our connectivity to the source of life, um, does that ooze out in the way that we relate to our neighbors and creation itself? Um, Do we think about stewardship versus ownership and possession? Do we realize that we're blessed to be a blessing? Do we realize that what God has entrusted us with should flow through us and not just be contained within our nuclear families? Like, there should be tangible 
evidence of the fact that it is no longer us again who live, but it's Christ who lives in and through us. And that's what I'm really trying to get after with the fruit in repentance, not this kind of works righteousness, because we know scripture is clear that, you know, we're saved by grace and grace and our faith in Christ. And it's not us and our ability to, you know, become these great people in and of ourselves, but it's really us being humble in our intentionality of submitting our lives to the spirit and allowing the spirit to navigate our steps that really start to produce this kind of kingdom fruit. So I think what happens is that when we can, when we are content with confession, then we realize that confession is not enough to actually help us to realize that we are being formed and shaped by powers and principalities, but also customs and the culture of worldly empires to live in a way that leads us to be more prone to pledge our allegiance to flag over the cross. And we have to understand the ways in which we are being seduced away from a gospel vision of flourishing that says that my flourishing is connected to my incarcerated neighbor's flourishing or my neighbor who doesn't have uh, housing or inadequate food or my neighbor who is being trafficked. Um, all of these different things. Again, Paul and Silas recognized this. They, they recognized that their flourishing was connected to this woman who was being exploited by this demon. Um, and they chose to enter into her reality, liberate her, and pay the cost that worldly empires enact on people who understand that they shouldn't just be interested in their own individual flourishing. But the kingdom economy says that our flourishing is found when we seek the peace and the prosperity of our neighbors, particularly mm-hmm. our most na- marginalized neighbors. And so we it's, it's a different worldview that calls us to live distinctively for Christ in a way that makes us find discontentment in the status quo. Because we know that there's something deeper, richer, more robust that's possible. And we know that the Spirit is willing that into existence. And we know that the good news of the gospel is that God wants broken vessels like you and me to participate in that inbreaking kingdom, which will which has already been inaugurated, but not fully manifested. And we get a chance to bear witness again to who and whose we are through how we choose to live and love. And that is rooted in our ability to understand that we have to turn away from these these patterns, these logics, these systems and structures, and these powers and principalities that are trying to persuade us to find contentment in the status quo, particularly when the status quo works for us. Yeah, thank you for that. And I love how you really flesh that out, like really put flesh on that in the book through historical yeah. examples of what that should look like through contemporary examples, folks that you know that you feel like are living that out faithfully and in a way that I feel like really shows also the communal aspect of repentance that this movement from a self-orientation to another orientation, that if you're repentance, um, it's it's less about you just feeling good about yourself and more about bringing about, as you said, the, the full manifestation of the kingdom of God. So yeah, thank you for that and for the way that you demonstrate that through the pages of this book. Yeah. I, I would like to emphasize that everything, listener, you've heard today is a small fraction of what is packed into this book in terms of the <laughs> theological and practical wisdom. There is a lot in the in the yeah. nine chapters that make up this book. So yeah. um, this is a small taste. So we definitely encourage everyone to go out and get the book. It, and, it's, and it's already out. It's not pre-ordering. You just, just go get it. <laughs> we'll have a link in the show notes. Um, Donnie, before you go, uh, is there anywhere that people can follow you or is there anything that you want to plug uh, other than the book? Uh, yeah. Uh, one of the things I guess that's been really encouraging about 
some of the response to the book is that for people who didn't know me, they've been inspired to read me as an author backwards. Oh, yes. Uh, so a number of people didn't know about my first book, Rethinking, Rethinking Incarceration, Incarceration yes. Advocating for Justice That Restores. It won a 2018 uh, InterVarsity Reader's Choice Award, and it won the 2019 Outreach Magazine Social Issues Book of the Year award. Um, so I would encourage folks who are trying to understand, like you're a little enticed by what I talk about in Act 16 uh, and what advocating for systemic change could look like. I really press into what it looks like for the body of Christ, specifically around this conversation of incarceration. Folks can find and follow me on Facebook on my author page at uh, Dominique Dubois Gilliard. On Instagram, I'm Dominique D. D is in Du Bois Gilliard, so Dominique D. Gilliard. And then on Twitter, I'm D. D. Gilliard. Um, and so those are the places that you can follow me. And there is also an accompany video-based small group curriculum that goes with Subversive Witness. And so we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But I really wanted to make this very tangible for people to process in community because this this is communal work. Yeah. Um, wh- while it has individual elements to it, there are also communal elements. And I think we have to be more intentional about the both and as opposed to the either or. There are also reflection yeah. questions at the end of every chapter in the book. So it's a good yep. thing to go through with a small group or something like that. Mm-hmm. And those questions do not let you off the hook. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was going over those with my question with my husband and I was like, wow, you do not pull any punches with this one. Oh, and can I just give a real quick shout out? Because um, I know there there might be some intervarsity folk on here. Um, this book would not be what it was without the wisdom of my sister, Jazzy Johnson. So mm-hmm. folks who know her, you'll be able to see some of her wisdom um, soak through the pages as you engage. And so thankful for I'm so thankful for her and her witness in the world. That's awesome. Dominique Dubois-Gilliard, thank you so much. This has been incredible. We really appreciated having you here today. Yeah, it was a blessing to be on with y'all and and chop it up and talk about the subversive nature of the kingdom. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. Just a quick reminder, you can get a free month of the subscription to our website at ktfpress.com slash free month. That's ktfpress.com slash free month. Please remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at KTF Press. Hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast player. And write in to shake the dust at ktfpress.com with any questions you have that you want us to talk about in our episode next week. And remember to do that uh, as soon as you can. Our theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Jack and Tam. And we will see you all next week. When you arrive, I Um, Jonathan, you want to, you want, do you want to go back to the, your first question? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a bridge or, or do you have eight other questions that just arose in your brain? Whatever. I do. (laughs) I really do. I was trying to not ramble, but now I'm rambling. So (laughs) You can ramble for a second. We got, we have, we have enough time for you to ramble a bit. Here's my, here's my question.